Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Dave Crouch. This is Policy Talks, and it's brought to you each month by Williamson, Inc., our Chamber of Commerce here in Williamson County. And uh, we are uh, happy to see a good crowd here at Columbia State uh, on this beautiful campus that uh, is provided for us to uh, conduct these uh, forums. We uh, also appreciate uh, Creed Henderson and his uh, crew coming to uh, Aris on, uh, on WCTV, our cable channel three, and uh, we're on uh, WAKM. We appreciate our audience out there on WAKM AM 950. Our uh, panelists this morning, uh, Kel wants me to call you panelists. I've been calling you guests for so long, it's hard for me to change, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, our guests this morning are uh, our state senator, Sam Johnson. Sam Johnson. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I rattled myself, okay. Jack Johnson representing its district uh, 27 now, used to be 23, but, uh, and he is our uh, Senate Majority Leader. Uh, proud of that, Jack, and uh, glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, next to him, Sam Whitson. I did get that right. Uh, our state representative from uh, District 65 here in the county. And then Jake McCalman uh, from District 63, our representative uh, on the east side of the county. Uh, unable to be here this morning, uh, Representative Gino Bulzo and Representative Todd Warner, uh, and uh, also Senator Joyce Hensley. He has a standing conflict with this show, so he hasn't been able to join us. Someday maybe we'll be able to coordinate, maybe even next next month because we're going to be off our schedule a little bit. But uh, we appreciate you all taking the time, especially given the the week you've had. Um, the um, It's been a horrible week, uh, 10 days. And, uh, you know, school shootings, uh, nine of our... Young men killed at uh, Fort Campbell, uh, not before last, in a helicopter crash. The uh, just uh, losing our district attorney here unexpectedly uh, a couple of weeks ago, Kim Helter. Just um, and then a unusually contentious uh, session y'all are having in Nashville. Sam, you know you were in the military. You're a veteran, uh, Colonel, and. Uh, You've, I'm sure, experienced death and, and, and tragedy uh, before. How does the military, and how do you handle this sort of thing? Thank you. Is this on? Okay, yes. Thank you, uh, um, Dave. Uh, yeah, this, what, what a horrible week. You know, we, and if I could just add, we started out Sunday um, with a service for our good uh, friend, uh, Kim Helper, uh, I was blessed uh, to be our foreman of our grand jury for several years, and Kim was the district attorney. She presented every case. She never sent someone else to present a case uh, to the grand jury. And what I was so impressed with was her dedication to fairness to everybody and how her respect. Um, I, just one funny story I'll never forget uh, when the judges would select the grand jury for uh, members. So Kim and I would sit there in the courtroom and the judges would pull from a box uh, the names of the people uh, selected at random to be uh, for the opportunity to serve on the grand jury. And the judges never excused anyone from grand jury duty. And I remember there was one young lady, they pulled the name and she walked up there and I looked at Kim, I said, we will never get her to support uh, you know, a true bill because she had covered in tattoos and had a, a bones and rings all over. And, uh, and I, you never judge people because she became what we called the hanging juror. She wanted to put everybody in jail without listening to the case. But uh, so that was just uh, an interesting time. But Kim was a very dear friend and, and Jerry and her children, Renee and Abby, she was so devoted to them, so devoted to our community. And you look at everything that she was involved in, it just covered so much. And it was just a shock, a loss. And, um, and 
So we presented as a delegation a flag that flew over the state capitol in her memory to Jerry and the girls. And then to the loss of the nine soldiers from the 101st, I understand they, it was two medevac helicopters. Listen, and my friends back there will know, it's inherently dangerous, routine training missions. There's nothing easy about it. Uh, and, and to be flying at night uh, with night vision goggles and two helicopters is just inherently a dangerous exercise. These things, unfortunately, happen more than we expect. I've lost friends in helicopter accidents. One of the best generals I've ever worked for was killed uh, in Germany in a Black Hawk helicopter, friends during Desert Storm. So uh, then the incident with the, the school shooting. Uh, we saw the worst, but we also saw the best in Nashville. And if, and if you have seen the body cam video of the officers involved, uh, you could not help but just have the highest respect. And that's just a reflection of our law enforcement community. In the Army, we always say march to the sound of guns. Well, those police officers, not just two of them, but it looked like three or four of them, uh, responded. And, and, and they had never worked together, really. It was as a team, and they knew how to do it. You watched how they moved through in a, like a tactical uh, movement. Uh, it was just absolutely incredible. And, the, and even the teacher standing outside in a convoy said they're upstairs, and she passed the keys off, allowed the officers to get into the building, and, uh, and how they neutralized the threat. Within minutes, I mean, Nashville, and, and, and Chief Faulkner was telling me a few weeks ago, they do not wait. They enter. You, if you get there first, you enter that building and you stop that threat to those children right away. And so um, our law enforcement community, uh, the training standards, we just need to make sure we set the opportunity to continue to recruit and retain those men and women in law enforcement. There's been a, um, over the years, a lot of disparaging remarks about law enforcement, but they show the best. What a, what a difference that we saw in the officers uh, very, Monday. Very proud of them. Um, very proud of them. Jake, uh, Representative McCallum, you've gone from being a private citizen to uh, right in the middle of some of the craziest uh, behavior. Uh, um, you can imagine uh, what's it like um, in a freshman, I should say. So uh, one of my colleagues on the floor yesterday looked at me and said, Jake, you uh, certainly picked a unique year to get elected. Um, you know, I can't really lean back on past experiences. So this is my first experience in the legislature. So I figure if I can, if I can go through this, I can handle anything else that's thrown at me because uh, it's, it's, it certainly has been an interesting few months. Jack Johnson has been a mentor friend for how long? Oh shoot! Uh, I've known Jack since I think I've, I've known Jack since before I moved here. Uh, we worked together at the Tackle App, and we were good friends and coworkers. And uh, I certainly can place the blame in my interest in politics and Jack. And uh, both Jack and Sam have both been just great mentor friends. And uh, for me, as I'm going through this uh, freshman year, yeah. Jack, you're uh, you're the I wanted to say veteran. That's probably not a good choice of words. You're the, you're the, long-time experienced senior. Thank you, uh, member of this uh, delegation. Been around since what, 15 years, 16, um, and you've seen a lot. But have you ever seen anything quite as interesting as this year? Well, it it has been a uh, a difficult year. Um, it has, and certainly this last ten days, two weeks, as you said, has been particularly difficult, and for for all of us. Um, uh, but we will persevere. That's what we do, and we'll we'll learn from things that that transpired, and uh, we will make changes uh, as necessary to deal with some of these challenges that we've been facing. And you know, this system works. It's not perfect, but it's a it's a good system. And uh, I take comfort knowing we've got good people like Jake and Sam and some of our many other colleagues up there on the Hill that are some of the finest people I've ever 
known or had the opportunity to work with. And that's really a reflection on the people of Tennessee, because it's the people of Tennessee who decide who's going to be serving up there in, in that chamber. Um, a quick, quick word about uh, General Helper and, and her loss. Um, you know, I want people to know not only was she well respected here and a great DA, but she was known statewide. She was a real leader among the DAs across the state. She was very active in the district attorney's conference, which is the association of DAs from across the state. And she was a frequent visitor to the Capitol uh, to speak on legislation that was being considered and to speak on behalf of DAs across the state. And she was an incredibly um, gifted, smart, respected uh, district attorney. And so certainly it's a terrible loss for us. Governor said, uh, this is not the time for policy decisions. I think that's a rough quote, I believe. Uh, Senator Gardenhire said, uh, this is not the year for gun bills. It's, um, but given the experiences of the last 10 days, or last week, really, what, uh, what effect is that going to have on legislation coming out of Nashville this year? Well, there's, there's one key bill that uh, hasn't received a whole lot of discussion, but obviously that's going to change in the wake of, of what transpired uh, on Monday, those horrific events. Um, one of the governor's top legislative initiatives this year was a school safety bill. And we've talked many times about how the governor has a legislative package, and of course members have legislation that they wish to pursue. And, and uh, the, the governor had several key initiatives, transportation, we've talked, we'll probably talk more about that today. Uh, but one of his uh, primary focuses this year was, was a school safety bill. Uh, the governor convened a task force last spring, summer, of law enforcement, uh, school officials, uh, stakeholders from across the state to really do a deep dive and take a, a hard look. We've done a lot in recent years relative to um, school safety. We've appropriated tens and tens of millions of dollars to expand school resource officers in, in schools uh, and to provide funding for schools to be able to harden their facilities is the term we use, to provide extra security and make sure, you know, that doors are locked and all those things that, that need to take place. That bill has been moving through the, the session um, and, again, has, has had some conversation. I think that's been overshadowed by some other things that have been going on. And ironically, uh, that bill was to be heard in the Senate Education Committee on Wednesday. And, and of course, this all transpired on Monday. So we met with the governor, obviously, and we've had numerous meetings with the governor and his staff, and, and we've decided to defer action on that legislation. And we can talk about does a number of things to uh, provide a Homeland Security officer in every single county, all, all 95 counties, to coordinate with, with local law enforcement and schools and counselors that are in the schools to, to help identify, you know, children that may be experiencing emotional difficulties. Um, so the bill did a lot of things and, and does a lot of things, but we did decide to, to defer action on it uh, for at least a week and to reassess in the wake of what transpired on, on Monday. Um, so we, we will continue to take a look at that, but it's important to know that school safety has been a big topic of conversation, you know, over the last uh, couple of years, and it was one of the governor's key initiatives. Yeah. Sam, you're, uh, I mean, you were in the military for how long? 26 years. Um, it's a pretty good uh, time. You should be well experienced in handling guns, um, policies on guns, uh, firearms, whatever you want to call them. Um, what, given our political climate, got to deal with that, what do you think can be done? Well, uh, there is a bill in, on the House side, and fortunately the Senate uh, toned it down, thank, thankfully, was to allow 18-year-olds to carry firearms. Uh, now it's 21 for the I want to make sure I got this right, and I think it's 18 to 21 if they have a permit. But also, the disturbing part of that bill is to allow people to carry a long arm. They want to change the name from uh, uh, handgun to firearms. And I, that would involve just a scenario, that person walking toward the school, let's say that person was walking toward the school with two long arms and a pistol, 
the police would not have the authority to stop and ask that individual who you are and what you're doing. The Senate stripped that out of the legislation. And I think that was absolutely critical that that legislation does not pass. And then when I hear about 18-year-olds, well, they're carrying in the military. Let me tell you, 18, 19-year-olds in the military, they go through extensive training to carry and operate uh, weapons. Uh, and, and then they're under uh, what we call the law of land warfare, the rules of engagement, they're under supervision. And when they're not uh, on duty or in combat, uh, that weapon is locked up. Let, let me interrupt there, though. Isn't there a uh, court case that's making it um, or reversing the the age down to 18 in the uh, constitutional yes, bill? Yes, understanding that that will be a, a court decision, but there is also, like I said, legislation doing that. I, I personally have concerns with that because, uh, but that is the process that we have, and uh, and I do respect the process, but. Uh, and also, I think we will take a look again at red flag laws or extreme risk protection orders. I think that's importantly uh, important to our community. Uh, I think it's important that we give due process to a gun owner before something happens than after. What's, what's, what is a red flag law? Well, if uh, extreme risk protection, if there's a report that someone has a uh, uh, going through a, a a mental health crisis or uh, or domestic violence or a history of violence or uh, that they can be reported and then uh, the, the, the firearms have to be removed. But it's done through a, a due process and, uh, and consideration of all the facts and stuff. So it does, again, you know, there's a balance that we want to make sure we not only protect the right for Second Amendment rights that I think we all support, but also uh, the rights of the... Uh, of the community and the family. Jack, there is a second amendment for a reason. Um, and um, the early fathers of our nation put that in there on purpose. Um, has anything changed about why that should be in there? Um, you're, you're a supporter of um, Firearms um, being available to most of us. What uh, what's your thoughts about the uh, Constitution? And, and that's probably not a fair question, but uh, I'm asking it. So. Well, I, I we all raise our right hand and put our hand on left hand on a Bible and take an oath to protect and preserve that Constitution. Uh, if I'm not doing that, then I'm not doing my job. So. Whether you agree with something in the Constitution or disagree with something in the Constitution, that's the oath I took as your state senator, is to uh, enforce and protect and defend not only our United States Constitution, but our state Constitution, which are, have very, very clear language relative to, to firearms um, and, and the right to, to keep and bear arms. And I do think it's a fundamental premise of our, of our Constitution, and, uh, and I do support the Second Amendment. And now, having said that, I also believe in states' rights. I believe in state sovereignty. I believe in the Tenth Amendment. And different states can have different laws on the books relative to gun ownership. And, and um, it's like the, the First Amendment. You know, the, you can't yell fire in a crowd at theater. It's, it's so, um, and different states have different laws relative to, uh, to gun control. And, uh, uh, and it's something we talk about every single year because, you know, uh, um, Different people have different thoughts, and, and like Sam said, there's a, there's a process, there's a legislative process that we go through relative to um, the, the laws that we have on the books relative to, to guns. But let me, I want to just quickly on the school safety thing, you know, it's, it's a complicated problem, and no one thing is going to, to fix that. And in and, and my brain, I try to break it into some silos. We talked about protecting the facilities, protecting the, the schools, hardening those facilities and making them more secure. I think that's, that's one thing we have to look at. Um, another thing that we have to look at is, is mental health and, and access to mental health treatment. And one consistent theme you see relative to these horrific events that take place relative to people who are capable of committing mass murder 
is mental illness, is mental illness. And I would dare say that anyone who's capable of doing something like that is mentally ill. If you didn't know it beforehand, you now know that they were mentally ill. And so we've done good work in that regard. We need to do more. Uh, one of the things I'm very proud of, and we should all be very proud of, is we have destigmatized mental illness to a degree, and we need to continue doing that. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to realize that you need help. We have a bill this year for our firefighters and our first responders who struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, that struggle with PTSD, and to make sure that they know that they can get help and it will be covered through their workers' compensation insurance. So we have to continue to do that, but as we do that, we have to make sure that access to that mental health treatment is available, that people can get the care that they need. And again, that's, that's not everything. That's, there's a lot of aspects to this, but those are things that are very important to me. Mr. McCalman, any further thoughts on uh, where we'll go from here regarding school safety, gun legislation, things like that? Well, uh, in the House side, the, the bill that Jack had mentioned, that went through GovOps on Monday. Uh, it's on the Finance Ways and Means next week. Um, I mean, it is, it is imperative that we keep our most precious, um, most precious things we have in our life safe. Um, and it, it is a complicated subject, and you know, with regards to, uh, with what Sam was saying with red flag laws. I mean, it's what what does that look like as far as, um, you know, clearly, this individual this past Monday should not have been able to purchase those firearms. Right. Um, that you, there was a number of things that were going on that, frankly, should have been reported, um, but they weren't. Um, so I think it is a, a it, it certainly is a complicated subject, um, and I don't think there's one right answer to it. Um, I think it's it's an it is numerous different uh, facets to a solution. But um, at the end of the day, it is we need to keep our kids safe. Amen. Now, can I add one? Sure, Sam. Yesterday, uh, advocates for safer gun laws and stuff lost a great opportunity in their conduct at the Capitol. I had friends that brought their children up there to peacefully express their opinion about that. But when this mob started using the F word in chants and incited by three members of our house, uh, they, they lost their standing to be heard. And it, it was, it, it, their if their intention was to achieve something, what they achieved was they divided the Democrat caucus and united the Republican caucus in their conduct and actions that day. If that's the new normal on how business is conducted on the House floor, we're in trouble as a General Assembly. And I respect what Speaker Cameron Sexton did. He showed restraint. He did not give them what they wanted to be escorted out in handcuffs. And, uh, but it was one of the saddest days I've ever experienced uh, in a long time about the Democrat process that we have in this country and how certain members were exploiting the situation, not to change the law, but to enhance their standing. And it was, uh, you know, I just want to say, uh, from now on, let them do their worst. We'll do our best. Yep. A lot of uh, important work that doesn't seem so important uh, in light of the the uh, things that have transpired this week, but uh, they are important. And uh, we need to continue to focus on the business that y'all are down there trying to conduct. And uh, one of the big big ones, I think, uh, passed the House yesterday, the governor's transportation bill. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, on the House floor, before all the uh, disruption, uh, we passed the uh, Infrastructure Modernization Act. Uh, uh, Chairman Dan Howe uh, of Cleveland, Tennessee, uh, uh, was on the floor presenting it. Uh, there was, uh, uh, and, and I tell people, we are driving on a 1968 interstate system with a 2023 population. And I think I mentioned it before, and uh, if uh, the oldest interchange in Tennessee is that exit one 
on I-65 going into Alabama at Ardenmore. It was built in 1958, and it has not changed since then. Think about that, what has changed in Tennessee, the truck traffic, the population. Um, I'm not sure that one needs to change. And way before Jake was born, and Jack, if I'm not mistaken, okay? You know, I use the metric, if you don't remember watching the moon landing, you, you really don't remember, okay? So, <laughs> I remember. Okay, I do too, and so does Tom. But, uh, <laughs> okay, no. But it, it is. This is an opportunity not only to uh, deal with the congestion problem in urban areas, but also to f this is the way we can fund improvements to our two-lane directional interstates. The, the, these rural interstates are dangerous. They're out of date. They cannot handle the traffic. And the governor's plan, the public-private partnership, has been done in other states and has been very successful. And so we need a funding stream to do that. And I think this will be, uh, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but uh, the next generation of Tennesseans will, will appreciate this. And it will make a difference, not only for safety, but also our economy in Tennessee. Jack, did, <clears throat> did the governor get everything he wanted in that bill? Uh, yes. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, and and there, <clears throat> there are a number of aspects to the bill, a lot of conversation about the choice lanes and what that means and how that works and happy to answer any questions about that. But uh, another thing we address, you know, the way we fund our roads right now and we pay for our roads is through a gas tax. Well, what do you do with a car that's not buying gas? There's a bunch of them out there, electric vehicles. And so we imposed a, a, a fee that's close to what the average person pays in gas tax every year, about $274, and that'll be indexed over time. So people who are driving electric vehicles, they're contributing to pay for the roads they're driving on as well. That's a, that's a critical part. But an equally critical part is the um, reformation of the, what we call the design-build process. Um, uh, I, I point out two, two projects that most people in this room would be familiar with. One is the, the refurbishing of uh, 440, the, the southern loop around Nashville. We all drive on that. That was a massive project, very complicated. It needed to be done, very expensive. And that project was done in about 573 days or something like that. It was, it was started and it was completed in, in less than two years. And that says a lot. Yet you can go over here to Franklin Road and the improvement of Franklin Road through Brentwood down into Cool Springs was a disaster and took over six years to get done. Before Jake was born. Before Jake was born. That's right. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> the, 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 a key distinction between those two, the 440 project is what is called a design-build project, meaning there was one entity that, that bid on the design the, the, the utilities and all the stuff that had to be done on that, and then the construction. And they bid on, a, on, a, they bid on it, and they were awarded the contract, and they were motivated to get that done, get it, and it was, it was completed on time and under budget. That the widening of, or the improvement of Franklin Road through Brentwood um, in the Concord Road area all the way down into northern Coal Springs, uh, that was not. There was a different entity that did the design work, a different entity that did the engineering, um, that did the utility uh, uh, improvements, and then ultimately the construction. And there were a lot of complicating factors on the Franklin Road, so I, but I use that as an example. The, the, another key part of the governor's bill is to allow more of these design-build type projects, because when you're talking about a massive interstate project, you're talking years to get that, that thing done. So anything we can do to cut down the process and that. So it, it's a big bill. There's a lot going on, but it's, its passage will really make our ability and TDOT's ability to get some of these projects done, big and small across the state, uh, quicker. It's going to generate a lot more money for those projects. And so really, really good bill, transformational bill that uh, I'm very happy passed. Help me, help me understand, um, I want to drill in a couple things Jack said here, Sam. The um, uh, specific parts of the bill, $750 million to each of the four um, divisions of the state, um, and that's just for additional uh, state-funded roads. The, um, but the choice lanes are all going to be privately funded, privately built. Um, and uh, the, uh, is that going to be like BlackRock coming in here and 
doing a design build project for extra lanes down I-65, um, and they're going to pay for them, or are they going to get municipal bonds and they be responsible? How does how does the funding work on something like that? So there there are private entities that that are out there um, that that do this, and and again, you can look in Florida, Texas, Georgia. Virginia, and there are others that, that are doing these types of projects. And so there, there are companies, private sector companies, that, <clears throat> that do everything that you talked about. So they, they will bid on these projects. And again, I use I-24 just because that's probably the most congested artery we have in Middle Tennessee from Murfreesboro to Nashville. So TDOT will go and, and do an RFP uh, with the passage of this legislation to these private sector entities that specialize in these types of projects. Here's the, here's the project, here's the traffic count, they get all the data, everything that they need, and these companies will come in and do their analysis. It's very complicated, of course, but then they will make, uh, they will bid on, on a project and say, we can add a lane each way, make it a choice lane, uh, it's gonna cost whatever, a billion dollars. And so we will raise the money through private investment and do the construction on that, and in exchange, they get a long-term lease, typically from 30 to 50 years, that they then uh, lease that facility back. We own it. I want to be very clear about that. The state of Tennessee owns that facility and the expanded capacity on that facility. For rumors and people out there that we're selling our roads to China or something, it's no, we own those roads. But this company will have a long-term lease, and then they can monetize that. And in their RFP, they will say we, we want to charge between this and this, and it'll be dynamic pricing depending on how traffic flow is going. And, uh, and so they're then responsible. The terms of the lease are very specific. They're responsible for the maintenance and the upkeep of that road. And guess what? They're typically, in Texas and Florida, the best maintained roads. If there's ice and snow, they're the first ones to get, get salted uh, or get the brine on there. Why? Because this private sector entity needs people driving on that road in order to uh, recoup their investment. And, and it works very well. I flew with the governor down to Texas. We toured a bunch of these, met with their TxDOT people, their Department of Transportation people, um, and they work very well. Uh, explain dynamic pricing. So dynamic pricing means that it's not just a set fee at, at any time. And they, the, again, their lease will have parameters they, uh, within which they have to maintain in terms of what they charge to drive on this particular uh, choice lane. Um, if, if traffic is moving pretty smoothly, and just I don't want to assume people watching or here in the room understand what we're talking about is adding capacity to existing facilities. Any lane that is there now, it will remain there, and there will be no additional charge to drive on that lane. This is only for added capacity. Um, so if you're on I-65 and that ends up being a project that, where it makes sense to do it and there's three lanes there today, those three lanes will be there when there's a choice lane. But we will add an additional lane that can be used and can be monetized. So depending on traffic flow on the three, we say free lanes, they're not free because you're paying for them with your gas tax now. So you are paying for, for those lanes, but there's no additional charge to drive in those. So you could drive in those lanes just like you do today. If traffic's bad in those lanes and the choice lane is zipping along at 70 miles an hour, um, then you can make the choice to drive in the, the choice lane and, and pay whatever the fee is. So depending on traffic flow and how it's going, if traffic's moving fine on the other lanes, they're probably going to charge a lot less because there won't be as much demand. If traffic is really backed up during peak times, they will be able to charge more to drive in the choice lane. So they'll have a range of pricing. So um, at night, is it going to cost us to drive on the choice lane? I probably not even need to drive on the choice lane, I guess, at night. But that, that's, that's just it. <clears throat> if it's 8 o'clock at night and there's not much traffic on the road, you're not going to use the choice lane. Or, or if, if, um, if, if the existing lanes are zipping right along at 75 miles an hour. So if um, you do want to have the option to drive on these choice lanes occasionally, um, are you going to have to go through a toll booth or are you going to have license plate readers that take your license plate and send you a bill. How does that work? So, yeah, you, you will be able to purchase a tag and, and, or a little sticker that goes in, in your, your window, and it's electronically read. You don't stop. You don't slow down. If you want to get in the lane, you get in it, and it will read that, and, and you'll have a credit card or whatever associated with that, with that tag, and you zip right along. If you're visiting from another state 
and you don't have that tag and use the lane, then yes, they take a picture of your license plate and they'll send you a bill. Um, but, uh, but you'll be incentivized to get the tag because if you get the tag, they'll charge you a lower rate, you'll get a discount. So for those of us who live in the area, it's probably gonna make sense to go ahead and sign up and get the tag, but certainly you don't have to. Okay. Sam, Jake? No, I was gonna say, uh, um, I was on transportation full and sub when we passed the Improve Act, and the difference between this bill and the Improve Act is we had to make a lot of compromises to get the Improve Act passed. Uh, if we have done it, if we had, if the Improve Act was done in the original form, we probably would not be here at this point because we would index the uh, gasoline tax to keep up with inflation. But that revenue stream is decreasing, like Jack said, and. Uh, so uh, on this one, uh, we uh, uh, would allow as more electric vehicles come in to that uh, amount based on the average amount people pay each year for gas, a uh, gas tax to increase no more than 3% each year. Okay. Jake? Just if I could add to it, I, I moved here from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and there, these, these roads are everywhere. But as a resident there having to commute in to Dallas every day from Prosper, Frisco area where I lived, I drove these roads every single day of the week because it was, to Jack's point, when we had ISO they were treated first. Um, when there was a car accident, they got that accident moved off as soon as possible because they want you, they want you moving on those roads. Um, you drive through Atlanta, the first thing I do if we're going through Atlanta is I hop on that little Peachtree Expressway because I don't want to sit in Atlanta traffic. Um, it, it, is, it is a game changer, and that's this personal experience. That's just something I wanted to throw in there as well. So I am uh, very much so looking forward to having a choice lane available when we have it. Great deal. understand the governor's revised budget is coming up this next week. Is that correct? Uh, how much is it going to be revised? What's going to be changing about what he asked for in his state of the state address, Jack? Well, I, I, I think, and this is our, this is our normal process, um, the, the governor proposes his budget and there's typically a date by which he delivers a budget proposal for the coming fiscal year, which will begin July 1st. Um, and that's typically around the time he gives his state of the state address. So uh, he makes his budget proposal and comes in and talks about things that, that he would like to focus on. Um, then we start our legislative session and we're working through all our bills and we're having budget hearings on all the various state agencies and departments and what their proposed budget is and asking questions about that, really doing a deep dive into that proposed budget. Um, the budget amendment that you're referring to, we call it the AA or the administration amendment, typically comes around the end of March, uh, early April. And, and the reason for that is, is because uh, we have additional sales tax collection data from late January uh, all the way through March. And so we have a better idea of where we are economically and, and what the real numbers we should be contemplating for the forthcoming fiscal year budget are. And because of the conservative nature which we manage the, the, the budget, um, there's typically additional revenue there because we're just very, very conservative. And so the governor can, can make changes to his originally proposed budget and, and contemplate funding some different things. A great example, uh, sadly, given the circumstances of this week, will probably re relative to, to school funding, um, or school safety funding. Uh, the original proposal, I told you about the bill that he, he introduced early on this year and because of, of what happened, but that's an example of something that might change from say the end of January until towards the first of March um, that we decide, either he does as governor or we, the General Assembly, decide that we might need to address. And so there will be lots of conversation, obviously, in the coming days about, about school safety. And there might be some other things that get changed as well. Okay. Anything specific to Williamson County? Last year, I think, we got the new building for Columbia State in the governor's budget. Uh, I haven't heard of anything specific to Williamson County. Is there anything there that we should look forward to well, not necessarily in this budget, but obviously the implementation of the new school funding formula, uh, which, uh, which will go into effect, and those numbers are pending, and so we're anxiously awaiting what those are going to look like, because that, that will have an impact not only on Williamson County Schools, but also Franklin Special Schools, and so uh, we're watching that. But in terms of the budget, and I can't think of anything. 
Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Sam. And you probably want to follow up on this. Another key aspect of the Transportation Modernization Act that I've neglected to mention, and it's a huge, huge part of it, is the governor has proposed $3.3 billion um, as a one-time injection into the road fund. That's never been done before. Uh, luckily, we are in a fiscal condition where we can do that. We've, we're in a very, very healthy financial state uh, condition in the state. And so he is proposing $3 billion into the state uh, road fund uh, that's funded by your gas taxes, and then an additional $300 million to be distributed to local governments, cities, and counties for them to be able to accelerate their, their projects. And put that into perspective, that fund is normally $21 million a year that we call it the state aid program, and that's state money that goes in that we can distribute to local governments to help them, taking that from $21 million to $300 million. So that should give you an idea of how serious we are and the governor is about dealing with our, our traffic situation. Eddie Hood, our uh, county road commissioner, uh, is very happy to see it go from one million to five million with a what is it two percent matching that we only have to put up, which is great for our county road system. Good, good. Now we've uh, on limited time. We've got about 10, 10 other topics I'd like to get an update on. So you get sixty seconds to address each one of these. I know this is hard for y'all, but the uh, what about the third grade literacy effort? Where, is, where does that stand? Not in education. I'll pass it to the senator. <laughs> well, um, so I think good good conversations are, are taking place, and to just reset. It's hard to do in sixty seconds. I'm going to try to 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 reset the stage. Uh, we passed legislation that said if you're not reading proficiently at grade level by the end of third grade, uh, then you have to do a, a handful of things. Because if we advance you to fourth grade and you can't read, you are destined to fail. Um, K through three, you've learned to read. After that, you read to learn. And that's one of the problems we have with, in, in our education um, uh, system in Tennessee. Now, we're going to provide intensive tutoring, intervention, summer school camps to make sure that these rising fourth graders are reading proficiently. If despite going through all of those things and that, that child is still not reading proficiently, then they have to repeat third grade. And that's the right thing to do, and I support it. The conversation is, is how do you make that determination about reading proficiently? And we've had great conversations with our local school people, and I think we're going to add some additional things to making that determination versus just the TCAP test, which is one test given on one day. And that's, that's a smart thing to do. Has that passed either the House or Senate yet? You know, it is. I think it's through our education committee, but I don't know that the House and the Senate are on the same page. But, uh, but okay, but it, it's making good progress. Okay. Juneteenth is a state holiday. Where are we at on that? Uh, yes, Governor proposed doing that. It's passed the Senate and passed the Senate floor. I'm not sure where it is in the House. Uh, I don't think it's been acted on yet in the House. We haven't seen it. Uh, Y'all been pretty hard on the uh, city of Nashville, probably justified, but uh, um, airport board, you're uh, reshuffling re the Choices there. Uh, is that done? A done deal? Yes. Yeah, we passed that on the Senate floor uh, yesterday and need to do that. Uh, the Nashville airport, 30% uh, of the traffic that goes through the Nashville airport comes from Nashville. 70% of the traffic that comes through the Nashville airport is from outside of Nashville. A lot from Williams County, some the Collar counties. There are people who drive from Knoxville to use our airport because they can get a direct flight, even though Knoxville has its own airport. So why in the world would the board for the Nashville airport be appointed by the Nashville mayor? And that's what happens now. The new bill, the mayor will still have two appointments, but the Speaker of the House, Speaker of the Senate, and the Governor will each have two appointments. Uh, council size reduction uh, that only affects the city of Nashville or the Metro Nashville, uh, is that a done deal? Uh, has it hit the house floor? I don't remember. Yeah, it's passed. It's passed. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the governor already signed on that. Okay. So they're going to have a 20-member council instead of 40-member council. Let me, let, me, let me correct you there. No, we, it's a cap. They can make it 10 members or 12 members. It just cannot be more than 20. Okay. That's good. Convention center funding. Explain how that's working. That's, uh, that's my bill, and um, we have 
passed it. I believe we have. Um, sorry, I've got lots of bills, but uh, but that's a that's an important bill uh, relative to the convention center uh, funding. Uh, actually, it has not passed on the floor, but it has gone come through the finance committee, so it'll probably be on the floor next week. Uh, we gave the city of Nashville all kinds of latitude relative to special tax provisions to be able to build and service the debt and maintain the Music City Center. And the, here's the good news, it's been very successful. And those special tax zones that we created and allowed them to capture certain sales tax revenues that were generated as a result of the construction of that Music City Center have done very, very well. And the problem is, though, the city of Nashville has been raiding those excess funds and using them for other purposes, which was not the spirit of the legislation and the, the authority that we gave them to do that. They've been using it as a slush fund to pay for some other things. We had a long conversation about Nashville and how they handle their finances. But uh, uh, the, the bill we have... Six, simply, 60 seconds worth. Sim the bill that we have simply says that the money that is generated by those special tax zones that we authorized for the city of Nashville to create have to be used to service the debt and maintain that facility. The governor has proposed a family leave act to give state employees, I think, uh, 12 weeks of uh, unpaid leave if they have a baby or adopt it. Um, is that happening and it's my understanding is right now is zero and uh the governor proposed 12 my good friend chair chair lady of the finance ways and means committee has recommended that we do six as a compromise and incremental change and i support that and i believe it, it, it passed uh that amendment passed through our finance committee this week uh something i picked up in some of my reading uh it looked like that was only for the executive branch of the state government what about all the other employees? Uh, okay. Yeah. So um, you had it, it does include uh, the executive branch and the judicial branch uh, employees. It does not include the legislature. Okay. And and understand that the executive branch of the tens and tens of thousands of state employees that exist, the vast majority, ninety plus percent, are in either the executive or judicial branch. So it okay. applies to all of them. It does not apply to the legislative branch. Uh, Y'all get eight, eight, eight months off anyway, don't you? <laughs> it wouldn't apply to members. I'm talking about legislative staff. Our, that that our, is a joke because they work year-round. And, and our staff certainly work year-round. Our, our full-time employees uh, up there that work for the legislative branch. But they do have a, this is getting into the weeds, but they have a comp time system because they work very, very hard for, I mean, they're working 60, 70 hours a week for four months out of the year, and they develop comp time that they can use during the eight months we're not in session, and it, the work level is not quite as, as high. Another thing, there's just a, a general separation of powers principle. We don't like the governor telling the legislative branch what to do. So if we're going to contemplate a, a medical leave or family medical leave uh, program for the legislature, we'll do it on our own. Okay. Uh, limited exceptions to the abortion bill that was passed last year. A um, couple of exceptions uh, to the abortion bill, ectopic pre pregnancies and uh, another kind that I can't remember. Um, just personal note there, my wife had an ectopic pregnancy and uh, she would have died if the doctor hadn't been able to, to do what he needed to do. Um, so... Uh, that I can I can certainly appreciate that. Anything else there that uh, you want to add to what's been done? And you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but there was actually two bills: one for rape and incest, and um, that was carried by my friend Irish Rudder. A few of us signed on to that as co-sponsors, but it was not acted on this year. The other bill dealt with the medical issues, uh, and there was uh, some compromises and change made to that that was carried by representative esther helton and uh it was it was to get it passed it was a bipartisan vote but it was um, it was narrowed down more than what was originally proposed and uh my good friend senator richard briggs uh, uh had carried that in the Senate, and he uh, made a very good argument uh, why it should be passed in the original form, but it, it, to me, unfortunately, it didn't. Sam, you get uh, 120 seconds on this next topic. Uh, the charter school expansion and uh, your effort to somewhat limit that, 
tell us what's going on there. Okay, so uh, I've lost two bills in committee since I've been up there this year, uh, since in the seven years. One had to do with cockfighting this year to make it, uh, and the other one had to do with charter schools. And my bill was very simple. If your school system had no failing schools, no priority schools, your school board retained final approval authority on any charter application. It could not be appealed to a, 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 a the state charter commission. Uh, it failed six to two in K-12 subcommittee. Uh, it was what it was not an anti-charter bill. Charters could still apply, for instance, here in Williamson County, uh, since we had no failing schools, but. Uh, but it, uh, it would give local control. It was a local control bill, but again, uh, it was met some serious headwinds, and unfortunately, it, it failed uh, last week, six to two. I called a roll call vote, and, uh, and it was, uh, we'll, we'll take another look at it next year. So are we gonna have charter schools across the state uh, proliferating now, or? Is well, the intent change? of this bill is school systems were being very successful in not having failing schools. I call it reinforcing success and also a motivator not to have a failing school in your district. And so um, it, it's up to the locals, and then uh, they have to make a good case. I think the Charter Commission has looked at those applications and made some good decisions not to uh, override local school boards on many of their cases they had this year, but we just want to make sure we... We uh, put it, some guardrails on it. Sheila Cleveland, uh, one of our local school board members. Um, how do we feel about that here in Williamson County? I totally agree with Sam that, you know, we just need to, you know, if you have a um, successful school district like we do, um, and we do look at the charter schools, and we're not anti-charter. It's just the ones that have been presented to us just fiscally didn't make sense and we didn't feel that they would be successful. And that's the reason why. But we like to make that decision because once we make the decision, it's a good decision, then that should be the end of it and shouldn't be appealed. Great. Mindy Tate's wanting to, I respect that, but I'll be back, Mindy. Hang, hang on just a minute. <laughs> got one other thing that we've got to cover here just a minute. We've got Cheryl Brown here with us, our uh, chairman of the, County Republican Party, and you've got an event coming up that uh, uh, a lot of people in this room are probably interested in. Tell us what's going on. I think it's April 18th. Yes, Thank you. Thank you very much. So I am running for re-election as your chairman of the Williamson County Republican Party. And what we have done has been amazing under my leadership. We have increased membership of 120%. We have sponsorship of 52%. We've also um, are the, we are the top revenue county Republican party in the state of, out of 95 counties. We have, we are the top revenue um, producing county party in the state. So our reelection reorg is coming up on uh, April 18th at the factory and it start, oh, doors open at 445 and we will close the door somewhere around 5.30, 5.45, but to try to start on time at six o'clock. We will be at the factory Tuesday, April 18th, at the factory, and doors again open at 4.45. I appreciate your vote, and thank you again. That is a very important date. Um, anybody that's interested in what happens to this county for the next uh, many years, uh, needs to be there and express their opinion about who needs to be the leadership. Uh, and uh, Cheryl, we appreciate you giving us the the, um, the update on that. But uh, literally, you all need to be there, every one of you. Uh, how do you register for that, uh, Cheryl? You can go to our website, WilliamsonGOP.org, and, uh, and click on the link for the reorganization. Please pre-register. That would help the process move smoothly. Thank you. There you go. Mindy, I'm afraid of you, so I'm coming. Uh, <laughs> Mindy Tate, uh, is it executive director? CEO. CEO. That's, that sounds better. Uh, Franklin tomorrow. I appreciate that, but I'm here today as a citizen, and with all due respect, I consider each of you friends. But what happened, the tragedy on Monday, 
our current school safety laws had no impact because it was a private school. That individual who chose to attack that school and murder six people could have just have easily gone to the mall, could have gone to a park, could have gone anywhere and conducted the tragedy that occurred. And so I want to say, I want to ask a question, and I, with all due respect, the new school safety that you're looking at, uh, Covenant School, it appears, had done everything right uh, and was looking at having a SRO privately funded. But with, in a county that has dozens of private schools, is there a way for parents who have chosen that route to feel safe of sending their children to school and secondly, sometimes the answer to stopping this, while it was a situation probably of mental health, is to remove the means. So how can we make that our community safer? That's what I'm looking for, is how we can make it safer, and can we look for privatization? Those private schools have support under school safety laws. Well, Mindy, uh that would have to be something with a private school that they would have to enter into a contract or a memorandum of understanding with local law enforcement how to provide that uh, SRO type situation at a private school. There, there is a cost to it. I think the private schools will have to do this. I think it's very important. I have two grandchildren that go to a private school. I worry about their safety and they have taken means down there. It's a small private school in Alabama. and and. And they have approached this, I think, in the right way. And but it will take a an understanding, like I said, an MOU or a contract uh, with uh, local law enforcement or training of personnel. We actually passed a bill through the House a couple weeks ago. It's at the governor's desk right now for private schools to be able to uh, contract with local law enforcement. One other opinion I'd like to get back here in the back of the room. He tried to hide, but. Uh, Jason Rubino is uh, uh, the, is it a, what's your title? Field representative. For Senator Marcia Blackburn. Jay is a war hero. I mean, a, literally a war hero. You ask any of these other uh, war heroes around, and Jay, um, he's done it all, uh, from the helicopters to, the, to uh, literally about all of it. Um, any further thoughts about what's been going on this week and what? We need to do. Uh, personally, uh, sure. You know, and like uh, Senator Johnson said, this is a multifaceted solution to one one problem, and we need to look at all of that to include overall safety and school safety. And uh, I know that our office is working on those in terms of funding and training um, for prior service members through uh, Leos and other veterans, um, and then also look into red flag laws while keeping that very tough because I know that we talked about the mental health issue that's a huge component of it and there's a lot of people even though we're opening up that accessibility um, to mental health and reaching out and destigmatizing that you're going to block a lot of people traveling into that route uh, that are going to be fearful of falling into that red flag category in terms of taking away their rights of owning a, a firearm. So it's a, that's a tricky situation there as well, but it's a multifaceted uh, solution. I don't know, there is no one, one, one thing, one silver ball, exactly, yes, sir. Thank you, Jay. The, uh, we're out of time, folks. I'm uh, sorry, but uh, we run this train on time, and... Uh, We've got a couple minutes left, and I've got a lot of people to thank for making this show happen. It surprised you how much uh, coordination effort goes into uh, getting everybody here. And uh, we especially appreciate Dr. Darrell Lampley uh, here that uh, is the president of the campus here at, uh, is that the right title? Something like that. Anyway, <laughs> Janet Smith's the president. So. Uh, we, uh, we appreciate the hospitality. Mary Beth Challey makes everything happen, of course, so we, we really know who makes it happen. But uh, Creed Henderson, uh, you guys with WCTV really uh, do a great job. We appreciate you getting here so early on Friday mornings and, and making it happen. Uh, 
Tom Lawrence, you, uh, you're a great friend, and we appreciate having w, uh, WAKM in our court. Hope that goes on for a long, long time. And uh, we uh, appreciate you being here. Dennis Wagner with AT&T, I wanted to come back there and get any suggestions you might have on moving utilities on road projects. We'll try to do that next month. Uh, and uh, the chamber staff, Matt, uh, Kel, Jenna, and especially Nancy Conway. Shout out to Nancy. She is recovering from a fall, uh, multiple broken bones, and uh, had a rough uh, last couple, three weeks. And uh, we wish her well. Hope she'll be back with us soon. The uh, All the listeners we've got here, good crowd this morning and uh, on, t on the TV radio audience. And especially uh, the Lion Leadership Group is providing McDonald's coffee for us here. And uh, we really appreciate that. It's, uh, it's free. So uh, just come and get it. Uh, we have moved this show to 8 o'clock. Hope that worked for everybody. And uh, we'll be back here on April 21st, I think we decided, the, uh, um, the, uh, for some scheduling conflicts. Uh, and uh, so three weeks from today, back here at Columbia State. I uh, look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. And I just want to point out Representative McCallum's uh, socks, <laughs> tie, and pin, okay? He is a true I, supporter of Columbia State Community I had College. to represent Columbia State today, so. Thank you all.